Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello, Medicus listeners. It's Catherine. I'm here with Dr. Nicola Orlov who is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Chicago. She is also the associate program director for the pediatric residency training program and co-clerkship director for the Pritzker School of Medicine. She is a pediatric hospitalist with an interest in improving the sleep and health of hospitalized children. And she is the chapter advisor at the Pritzker School of Medicine for the Gold Humanism Honor Society. However, what we're particularly excited to talk about with Dr. Orlov today is the innovative curriculum she is working on with the Pritzker School of Medicine that uses improvisational theater to hone the communication skills of students. Hi, Dr. Orlov. Hi. Do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit more about this program and how it came to be? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here today. So I think you covered my clinical role and my educational role pretty entirely, so I don't think I have a lot to add there. Thinking about this improv curriculum, I guess I'll talk a little bit about what got me excited about it and interested in it, and then how I developed it. So as you know, and as you mentioned, I'm a clerkship director, one of the clerkship directors here. and. In the Department of Pediatrics, as I work with medical students who come through, I obviously get to oversee them and observe them a ton in their clinical role. And I really love getting to do that. You know, I observe them on the wards. I also actually work with second year students as they sort of learn their clinical skills. Mm -hmm. You know, they go, they see patients, they practice them, and then they practice presenting them. And one of the things that I really realized was that students do a fantastic job of following the clinical script that we give them. At Pritzker, they have a first and second year clinical skills course where they learn the head-to-toe exam, they learn how to gather an entire history, you know, history of present illness and past medical history, and, you know, that course is excellently taught, they learn communication skills, and they really hit the ground running and ready and able to do that and follow that script from the start to the end. But I really noticed that it was not uncommon that they would get focused maybe a little bit too much on the next step in that script. And I don't know if you're smiling because you're maybe relating to this, (laughs) but you know, in pediatrics when we interview adolescents, and I'm not sure if you've learned this yet, we have this mnemonic that we use, the HEADS exam. It's Mm -hmm. the way of conducting a confidential history or gathering a confidential history. Mm you ask them all of the like really intense high stakes questions right and some of them are fun and much lower stakes like what activities do you enjoy how is school maybe high stakes for some kids but for most (laughs) it's kind of low stakes yeah but then we ask the like sex drugs and rock and roll questions right Mm -hmm. and those are much higher stakes and i think the way in which you ask those questions impacts the answers that you get so if you ask them in a non-threatening way in a way that has instilled confidence that you will keep it confidential, Mm -hmm. it will impact the type of answer that you get. But what I really noticed was the response and the reaction out of the student was not always intuitive. And it was not always a response that I think they would have had (laughs) had they not been sort of 
focused in their own head on what the next question was, mm -hmm. or getting to the end of the HMP, or doing it within this prescriptive amount of time that we give them, you know? And as an example, they might have gone into a patient room and, uh, and an adolescent might have revealed that they were sexually active mm -hmm. or that they were using some type of drug and the reaction was not necessarily in response. Or the student didn't necessarily respond to what the patient said, yeah. but rather was like ready for the next series of questions that they were you know, supposed to ask on their checklist. And so I, I really noticed that mm -hmm. during our clerkship and started to think about how we could make that better. How can we get the student out of this really focused, what's the next step, but rather listening to the patient and responding to them in the moment. Yeah, for me personally, I've noticed that a lot. I call it the robot effect, totally. where you have prepared so much for like the checklist that you know you have to get through in order to meet all the requirements, but in doing so, you lose that personal connection to the patients and being able to react to them in the moment. And it's kind of sad because all of us, we went into medicine because we want to make those connections with our patients. And also if they tell us something we're not expecting and you haven't rehearsed the exact line you're going to say, then it trips you up. I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I think you're, I hope for the, the students who are listening, what you are describing really resonates for them. It resonates for me as I think back to what my experience was as a medical student. You know, I was really focused on doing a good job, answering the right questions, posing the right questions to the patient. And I think one of the thing that, things that happens with time is that all of those steps become second nature. Mm -hmm. And for you all, early in your training and in you know, your second and third years, you're so, that, that stuff isn't second nature, you're still learning it. And so you're focused on thinking about the next question. And at some point, you don't even have to think about the next question, right? That becomes second nature. And then you can become more present at the patient bedside. But what I was hoping this curriculum would do is teach students the importance of really listening in the moment and being present in a conversation rather than getting um, sort of stuck in your head thinking about what's to come next. Yeah. So when you actually worked on the curriculum, what did it end up looking like? So it is an elective course, so Pritzker students get to choose during the spring of their third year from a bunch of different electives, and this is just one of the options, like one of the available courses. And it is an eight-week course, two-hour sessions, during each of the sessions, we do improv activities, and then we do a lot of debriefing about how that improv activity mm -hmm. might then translate to a patient encounter. And are they medical scenarios, or are they anything is fair game, we're learning here type? They're setup? really not at all medical activities. Okay. Um, again, they're tied back to the bedside. Mm -hmm. so, they may, as an example, and when I presented this work, I shared a video, or at the most recent time that I presented, I shared a video of one of the activities that we did where students were paired up, again, pre-COVID time, so when <laughs> yeah. you look at the video, it's a little startling because people are unmasked in it, um, but it was filmed pre-COVID, and the students are unmasked and they're walking through the halls. They One of the students is blindfolded, okay. and the other student is guiding the blindfolded student 
using their communication skills, not using their physical body, but really like through communication skills, right? So really, you know, the, the blindfolded student is really having to listen carefully to what's happening. They're guiding them around our, the, what we call the BSLC, which is the medical school building on campus. And as they're going up and down stairs, they have to give instructions about how many stairs there are, where, what side the railing might be on, whatever mm-hmm. else it is. And, so that's an example of something that's totally not medical, right? But yeah. then when we came and debriefed it, we talked about how this could be then tied back to the patient bedside. And that's true for every one of the activities, not medical, but then tied back to the patient bedside. The one thing I will say that I have really noticed through this course and other improv work that I've done here, which I can talk about, it's been interesting working with first years because they don't have very much in our medical school, they don't do much with patients mm-hmm. yet. And so they have um, a little bit harder time understanding how this might be tied to a patient encounter or relevant to medicine. There are a bunch of people at this institution, some really incredible people at this hospital who are also really interested in both medical improv and just the art world and how that can be tied to medicine. So her calendar works on that, and Dr. Marshall Chin, who is um, in the Department of Internal Medicine, he does a ton of work with medical improv and how it can improve health disparities. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with him on that. One of the things that, you know, we've worked with all different sort of levels of learners, and we have come to realize, having worked with undergraduate students, first-year medical students, you know, residents and fellows and even attendings through the um, McLean Center for Medical Ethics, we've really realized that we can do better with our med improv with those who have more patient experience because they can tie it back. They can relate these these activities to the bedside sort of more intuitively. Then they can take it really seriously when they're like kind of in the moment and figuring out how those skills are helping them. Or Exactly. I think that the first years are just it's less it's less obvious to them how this relates to patient care and I think with the people who have gone much further through their training and have encountered and faced more challenging patient encounters or conversations it's a lot more obvious to them how this is relevant and it seems like the ultimate goal in the way that you've structured it right now is to be able to have quantitative measures of how it improves student communication, adaptability, and confidence, right? Those are the parameters that you're mostly measuring? You got it. You're well read. Exactly. Okay. How have you gone about making those measurements? I received generous funding from the Buxbaum Institute here on campus mm-hmm. to build this elective and then to study it just to take a moment to think a little what exists in the literature. There's been a lot done with improvisational theater in the world of medicine, but it has really focused almost exclusively on self-assessment. What did the person who took the course, what do they perceive has happened to their skills? Do they think they've become better at talking to patients? You know, do they think their communication skills are better? Do they think that they're patient care skills are better, right? But there's no actual, it's all subjective. Self-reported and subjective, there have been no objective studies at this point. And so I thought, wow, cool. And in (laughs) fact, one of the studies actually, I think it was Katie Watson through Northwestern who even 
said in one of her manuscripts that this area really needs somebody to study it objectively. So I thought this would be a really cool thing to do, to study this objectively. So we, of course, did the subjective surveys as well. We surveyed, so we had opened the course to 20 students, mm -hmm. and we recruited 20 controls. So we took the 20 kids, students, adults who went through the class, and then we gathered 20 of their classmates, and we said, we are going to financially incentivize you to help us out. All of them had to self-assess their communication skills prior to the start of the course. Students also had to go through a standardized patient encounter okay. where they were supposed to have a conversation, a high-stakes conversation with a patient. Mm -hmm. And the standardized patient assessed their communication skills and their confidence. Mm -hmm. I took 20 students through the course. And then on the back end after the course, they all self-assessed and they all also went through the standardized patient encounter again. And so that's how we found, that's how we were able to objectively measure the impact of the course. Now, I, as I mentioned, we opened the course up to 20. We only had, um, I think it was 14 enrollees. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that was in 2019. Yeah. <laughs> 2019, and then yeah. we hit, you know, the spring of 2020, we weren't able to do it. and then all electives were canceled from 2020 mm -hmm. and then last year they were doing electives over zoom and i decided because i was studying this that i didn't want to do it over zoom because yeah. i wasn't sure how i was going to be able to control for the impact of you know doing improv over zoom now i i've done a lot of teaching of improv over zoom since then <laughs> with these other people at the at the institution and it's i've been amazed at how much we can accomplish truly stunned at how much we're able to accomplish but so this year will be the second year this spring will be the second year of the course do you find that a lot of the students that might have signed up for that first year had already done improv previously in undergrad and is that something that you take into account when yeah you're doing absolutely we asked a ton of demographic questions okay. so that we could understand what were the factors that motivated this group to enroll in the course mm -hmm. versus the controls and I actually I don't know that off the top of my head. Oh, it's yeah. So no. I have to like go back at my data set and look. But we asked them, did you take a gap year? Do you have other degrees? To try to understand whether there were differences between those two groups. And yeah. One of the questions that we asked was whether they had past experiences within province. Certainly, just from my memory, I would say that many people came in quite nervous and not having much <laughs> experience with it. What kind of feedback have students given you on the experience? Do they like it? Do they tell you that it makes them uncomfortable at first? I'm asking a three-part question, so that makes it kind of hard to follow, but <laughs> I guess it's like, what do they talk about when they talk about it with you after, even if it's not on the formal survey feedback? Yeah. So I guess you asked me, what do they talk about? But you also asked me, were they nervous? They were definitely nervous, and I can think of a few students who I might not have identified as shy or nervous or reserved, yeah. but some of the activities pushed them in ways that really, I think, made them feel uncomfortable. I don't mean that to suggest that we made people feel uncomfortable yeah. or had them do things that are outside of your, like your normal comfort zone, but I think that, I think that some of the improv activities they put you on the spot and and I saw people get uncomfortable. Now, I know that that's important to overcome that because during your third year, you are very much put on the spot. 
and you, I think we see, you know, a lot of performance anxiety, and I think that working through improv activities like this can help overcome some of that performance anxiety, and so I'd have to go back and ask, I, a few students come to mind in particular, like mm -hmm. whether they thought that helped them during their third year, so that was sort of the answer to that part, mm -hmm. um, or that question. The other question that you asked was, what was the feedback? Was yeah. that question? I think the feedback was, and I've touched on this a little bit already, mm -hmm. but that it it was sometimes hard for them to understand how this tied back to the bedside. Yeah. And the woman who, so I worked with somebody from Second City mm -hmm. to develop this curriculum, and she was not a physician, you know, but she had experiences within the within the hospital system yeah. so she could sort of speak from her own experiences as a patient mm -hmm. I talked a lot and shared a lot of my insight with the students about how I thought this could tie back to the patient and yeah. as soon as I sort of shared some of those examples I think it sort of turned the light bulb on for them a little bit yeah. but it it wasn't totally obvious to them so the debriefing sessions were critical, I think yeah. is the point that I'm trying to get at, right? Had we just spent the course doing the improv activities, they might not, they, I definitely don't think they would have appreciated the value during their first year, maybe during their third year they would have, mm -hmm. in reflection, appreciated the value of it, but I think the debriefs were critical. Mm -hmm. and, and as we talked about it and tied it back to the bedside, they were then able to engage in conversations about like, I got it, okay, I see why this could be important. It's um, kind of one of those where you're like, trust the process, trust me, we've thought about this from so many different angles, but after you get those first couple weeks, it's easier to buy into the system overall as you move forward. Exactly. That's the benefit of eight weeks and not like a one day workshop where you're like, you're gonna learn everything. Which is really an interesting point because a lot I, I use the word a lot, but that's actually not accurate. There's not a lot of data on medical improv. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions that's been asked is, what is that? What is the dose that's needed in order to make an impact? Yeah. And I, I'm not sure that we know. I'm not sure that eight two-hour sessions is necessarily the answer. Is yeah. I, I'm not sure whether that's too long, too short, just right. Mm -hmm. um, my project is not designed to necessarily answer that question. Yeah. So do you want to talk, we hit on it a little bit, but about what it was like to have that collaboration with, I forgot the name, but the person from the Second City, and if they had done anything like this before to improve communication skills, or if you had to start from scratch and build something. Absolutely. So it was incredible working with them. Second City has a department called Second City Works, I believe, okay. and that is the department through which they develop these new curricula to, you know, that they um, bring to other professional environments yeah. or industries. So it was great working with them. I actually got directed to a group who had previously built a program that they took to the caregivers of patients who have Alzheimer's. I'm digging so <laughs> deep because this was so long ago, but they built a program to sort of support the caregivers of patients who have Alzheimer's. And it was from that material mm -hmm. that we then extracted 
activities that we thought would be sort of like appropriate for the students. Yeah. So basically they had a huge sort of file of potential activities and you know all sorts of resources that we went through as we thought about how we wanted to build this out. We really structured it with a bunch of different goals and objectives and then you know each sort of day had a specific focus. So one day was like nonverbal communication. I, pull up my file and we can look at like what each of the what the focus of each yeah. day was but as we thought about what was the skill that we were trying to teach during that day we then chose like specific activities for that skill mm-hmm. it was very intentional and it was developed with you know somebody from their department who has real expertise in this area and so specifically within the world of medical okay so each day does have kind of a different focus it's not Correct. like okay Although comedy isn't the focus of the training, do you ever find that you lean on humor in your practice as a pediatric hospitalist? Kids have this wonderful sense of humor, and so I can imagine because you spend so much time thinking about how to improve the patient experience, especially for younger patients, that this could be a strategy to help them feel more comfortable in such a foreign environment like a hospital. Yeah. I. I think the answer is no. Mm-hmm. I uh, there is definitely humor that um, sort of comes into the day, maybe you know within our team, mm-hmm. or humor that a patient brings into you know an encounter. Mm-hmm. I don't. I I try not to bring humor to the bedside mm-hmm. when I am talking to my patients and to their families. But I really lean heavily on the skills that I've learned through improv because, you know, the whole point is to be present, to be actively listening, and to respond to what your, you know, the other person has said. Mm -hmm. And that is a critical skill in hospital medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, our patients, the parents are here at one of the scariest times of their lives because the person who they love most is sick. Yeah. They're stressed, they're anxious, they have lots of unanswered questions. You know, the process doesn't necessarily go the way they're anticipating. They might be frustrated. Whatever that emotion is, I think that the time that I see myself leaning the most on the skills that I've learned on improv is when I am sort of listening to them. Yeah echoing what I'm hearing them say, you know, trying to show empathy, mm-hmm. trying to, to, to provide support, trying to identify solutions to whatever problems they are highlighting for me. So the short answer is that I really don't sort of bring the humor side yeah, of no. improv to the bedside, but I really bring the improv skills to the bedside, and I think that that is really what allows me to connect to my patients, to support them, and to hopefully help them feel like their voice has been heard. Yeah, it's one of those goofiness isn't necessarily what the situation calls for. You're looking to meet them where they're at and be present with them. Exactly. We're kind of hitting on it a little bit, but do you want to talk about your background in improv? What got you into it? Yeah, totally. I don't have much of a background in improv. Mm -hmm. I really got interested in it because 
I talked about this a little bit at the beginning. I began to see this problem with the medical students, right? That yeah. It's not a problem, really. I thought, how could we make them sort of more present in the moment during these high-stakes conversations so that they respond in in the moment so that they respond to what's being said by the patient rather than sort of worrying about what the next oh, question yeah. is on their checklist. And mm-hmm. I noticed that as an issue and tried to begin brainstorming how we might fix that and came across improv as a potential solution to that problem. And at that point, started brainstorming, you know, I got excited about the idea of like maybe building out this elective and could this fix the problem or could this help the students with their advanced communication skills? But I was like, what a phony I would be (laughs) to then try to bring this to the students without ever having done it myself. I mean, that seemed crazy. So I enrolled in an improv course so that I had some experience with it. And I did that for about a year before, while I was brainstorming all of this and trying to build the class and apply for the funding. So I really only have about a year of taking courses under my belt, but it, I think that that's enough to be able to relate to the experiences that they're having in this short course, so. Yeah, you're almost can relate to them more because you're like, I'm new to this too. <laughs> right. Totally. And, and, you know, while I took that course, I remember thinking, I really think I'm right. Like, <laughs> these experiences are amazing, right? Like, I've been in medical practice for a long time now, and this really is helping me better understand how I interact and respond to people. And one of the things that I learned the most and have really tried to change about the way that I communicate with other people is that I would often ask people a question or be in a conversation and I was totally unaware of it Mm -hmm. but while they were talking or answering the question I was in my own head thinking about what was next to come in the conversation or thinking about yeah what was next to come in the conversation and it wasn't until we really explored that in my improv class that I realized that that was something that I do all the time and so I've really tried to like stop that and be much more present and listen to what people are saying and respond to what they're saying rather than like what my agenda is or where I next want to go or where I next want to lead them in the conversation and so I think that that's it's really been altering and hopefully has not only improved the way that I communicate with patients but my family and friends and yeah my children. <laughs> <laughs> That's tough because you think in the moment that by thinking, and I was doing this right when I was thinking this, about this question, but you think that it means that you're a super good listener if you're already thinking about how you're going to respond. Right. But then people are like, you're not even, I might even be looking at something else, like focus so hard on when I can slip in the next thing that it just loses what I was trying to do with it in the first place. You got it. Yeah. But, and you don't get to do that in improv because someone might just completely switch the storyline that you're going off of in the moment and you have to be able to kind of that run is with it. truly the one of the most challenging parts of improv and I think we talked about you know how it can make students uncomfortable right yeah. like a lot of med students are type a right they want to like <laughs> say the right thing and do the right thing and give me my gold star now <laughs> right, yeah. exactly and in improv there isn't necessarily a right answer. And so being in your head and worrying about what you're gonna say next is actually going to get you further from the technically the right answer, right? Because 
then you're missing what's just been said and the next thing that you say is totally unrelated to or doesn't fit with the story or and so letting go of that worry and not thinking but really just listening and responding is hopefully like a skill that they've learned in the course. So as an M2, I feel that I can confidently say that the first couple years of medical school does put this huge emphasis on memorization, right? How many mnemonics, flashcards, acronyms, and checklists that you can cram into your brain. So by the time that you start seeing patients third year, you get that strong base. Mm -hmm. And that's what the goal is, but you kind of lose the essence of that when you focus so much on memorizing the content that if any one part gets switched up, you're like, oh crap, I don't even know what to do, I'm stuck. And this gets back to that discomfort you were talking about. So I guess, is it, like the goal of this training is also to address this and not just communication skills. That's that thinking on your feet that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean it's, right, it's getting comfortable with things not being perfect. Mm -hmm. It's getting comfortable with exploring that less familiar territory. And it's getting comfortable with really being willing to take on whatever the patient offers you or hands you in a conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, again, you are in a room with a 13-year-old and you are for the first time going through the HEADS exam because that's when, actually, we sometimes even started as early as 11 so that they start to get comfortable with the process. But I don't think very many people are going to expect a 13-year-old to disclose, I don't know, sexual activity or drug use or something and that yeah. can really you know you could think okay I'm going through the heads exam because I'm supposed to go through the heads exam and this will be really quick and then receiving or, or, or having your patient give you information or share information or disclose information that you aren't anticipating can you know be sort of jarring and startling and getting comfortable with those uncomfortable moments and just sort of responding intuitively in the moment, there isn't, again, a right answer, right? Yeah. And just being there and listening and being present and and really for a medical student, just gathering the information so that then you and your attending can troubleshoot next steps is one of the most important roles that you as medical students can have in the in the lives of your patients like your attendings and your residents don't always have the time that you guys have to gather the data and the information that you guys gather so really doing that effectively is one of the most important things you can do for your patients yeah and that's a tough dialogue to come up with in your head because it is so important you don't want to be the the kid's mom that's not your role you don't want to be so stiff that they're not talking to you, right. but you need to be professional because you're not the cool aunt that you tell everything to because you need to make sure that you're communicating safety related Absolutely. to that kind of thing. And that's a difficult balance to make and it's a little bit different with every person. So that's where the improv can come in handy because it might look different for each kid that reveals things that kind of are the same at the very core, but not the same it's a different person and and I think one of the things that I like to remind students is like you don't have to have the answer you don't have to know how to handle the situation that's our job is to help guide you in those hard conversations right once you've gathered that information then you come talk to us and we can help you troubleshoot how to handle that with the patient but it is your job to gather that mm -hmm. data for us and so it's okay if you don't know how to respond in the moment, 
but getting the information is really like critical and if you and you can explore responding and see how it goes and then we can when you come out of the room talk through how it went and then go back in and sort of readdress whatever the topic is when we go back in together so yeah and I think we've all had that experience as a like an M1 or M2 you are practicing your histories for the first time you get into the hospital take what you think is the best history you've ever gotten, you think you have everything, and then you go in with the attending, and just the way that they phrase stuff right. and their presence, people will tell you completely different right. things, and you're like, what did you do? I need to learn it. It's <laughs> like, you just got this person to, to just talk to you in this whole different way, and I want to be able to do that and to have that connection with people, and you only get that through practice, right? Like, right, and I mean, I think one of the things that I really, I envy medical students. I would love the opportunity to rotate through the hospital and watch all of these, all of my colleagues talk to patients and interact with patients because you have the luxury of sort of stealing their tricks mm -hmm. and you know watching each of them and the way that they handle different situations and taking some of their tools and putting them in your pocket and then using them in the future, right? Like when I get into a tricky situation, I'm like, help, who's gonna help me in this moment? I mean, luckily I have a, an amazing group of co, my, my section is incredible and we talk a lot and I have friends in the section who I can lean on when I am in a challenging situation with a colleague or a patient or you know, friend or whatever else. They will give me advice, but it's not the same as being a student. You get to really like watch other people and take, you know, learn from them and sort of decide what you want to incorporate into your own practice. So. Okay. Do you think laughter is the best medicine or that medicine is the best medicine? Mm. I often think um, communication is the best medicine. Oh, that's such a good answer. Honestly, though, <laughs> I mean, I don't think necessarily that medicine is the right it, it is the best medicine sometimes it is mm -hmm. and I definitely don't think that laughter is the best medicine I mean you know I always I always say to my children like if you smile you'll be happy so like stop being grumpy <laughs> and take that pat off your face and like just smile because it'll make your day better yeah I'm sure they're super annoyed hearing you say that but I think that really communication is the best medicine like when you feel like your voice is heard and I see this in practice all the time, right? We're at a patient bedside, the parent is angry. Like they are frustrated, they are, they are angry with the way the care of their child has gone this yeah. far for whatever reason. And you can feel their anger, like <laughs> it is palpable. And we do family-centered rounds, so the family is present on rounds. My team is massive. We're a crew of 15 at each patient bedside and their anger is palpable by every single person on the team. And it's incredible to watch and feel that sort of tie change as we say to the parent, I am so sorry that you feel that way. Like, help me understand what has gone well and what hasn't gone well. Because in understanding what hasn't gone well, we can then work with you to fix that moving forward. Like, we want to understand what your goals are. We want to understand what you hope to accomplish for your child during your time here. And if you can share that perspective with us, then we can do a better job of helping you meet those goals. And really giving them a chance to speak. 
echoing, you know, sort of echoing or repeating whatever it was that was said after they said it, and doing it with empathy, like that to me feels like the best medicine because you can see the change in a matter of minutes. A parent who is so escalated, really de-escalate, and so, and I know we talk a lot about, uh, we've talked a lot about parents, mm -hmm. and the same is true for patients, right? We have adolescent patients who um, come in with mental health, you know, issues, and, and we sort of de-escalate them in that, in a similar way, and so, yeah, I think I would say that probably communication okay. is... You were talking about your kids for a second. Do your kids think you're funny? <laughs> no, my <laughs> kids think that my kids think my husband's funny. My kids think my you know my husband is sort of like the god in the house. Okay, and I'm like um, the bad guy. It turns out actually that my husband really is funny. Like he's probably one of the funniest people I know, and he and I guess within our marriage, like um, humor is or laughter is the best medicine. Like, yeah, that's one of Totally. Thank you so much, Dr. Orlov. This has been super fun. We'll be excited to hopefully follow up with you in a year or so, see great. how things are doing and uh, what, what you find. Yeah, great. And I look forward to exploring your podcast some more. Thank you so much for making the time. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to MedicusPodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relation is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Views and opinions are their own and do not represent any organization.